We're going to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. This whole chapter is worth reading, but it's also 58 verses long, so we're going to pare it down a bit. Um, And I'm going to just read the first 25 verses, um, and Lord willing, bring out some thoughts from these verses here. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Begin reading in verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was Uh, buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also." For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead... How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised." For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power." For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Well, um, today I want to talk to you uh, about living in hope of the resurrection. And the way I'm going to approach this is three basic points. And the first being, looking here at what Paul is saying in this middle section... The foolishness of the Christian life without 
the resurrection, or we might say apart from the resurrection, the foolishness of the Christian life. And then we're going to consider briefly, very briefly, the fact of Christ's resurrection and the certainty of the believer's resurrection, and then finish with living in hope of the resurrection. And so to begin with here, I want to consider the Christian life from the lens or the viewpoint of the world. So the unbelieving person considering the Christian life and not considering the impact that Christians have on an unbeliever, but rather considering the call of Christ to the believer. Now, the Christian life is not a life that the flesh envies. Um, If the world desired to live as Christians, then every church in town would be full and we'd be building more churches because everyone would want to be a Christian. But that's not the way that it is. The Christian life is an offense. And again, when I say the Christian life, I'm talking about the call to the Christian is an offense to the unbelieving world. It's a stumbling block to them. Think about what Jesus says we are to do if we are going to be his disciples. In Luke chapter 9, he says this, verse 23, And Jesus was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So that right there is the call to the Christian. So how does the lost man respond to that kind of a call? Well, certainly it's not an appealing proposition to them to deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow him. Think about this. Deny yourself the impulses you feel, the desires of your flesh, the appetites, the pride, all of it were to deny, deny yourself. The message of the world is exactly the opposite. Be yourself. Don't let anyone tell you what you can and can't do. You make the rules. You set the course for your own life. This is what the world uh, is telling us and what oftentimes the lost man is thinking to himself. If it feels good, do it. If you want it, get it. That's the exact opposite of denying yourself. And that's what Jesus has called us to, to deny ourselves. Well, what else does he say? He says, take up your cross daily. So what exactly does this mean, taking up our cross? I mean, we understand the literal physical cross, but what does Jesus mean by that? Take up your cross daily. Well, it doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that any time something doesn't go your way, it's your cross that you have to bear. That's not what Jesus is saying. You know, my car broke down again, but I guess it's just the cross I have to bear. That's not what Jesus is saying. Taking up your cross has nothing to do with the general hardships that people face in their life. High taxes is not the cross you have to bear, nor high gas prices, nor is a difficult boss or a difficult job. That's not the cross that we're called to bear. I think taking up your cross is best understood to be this. 
daily being willing and ready to bear reproach for the sake of Christ, to not be ashamed of Christ no matter the pressure and no matter the consequences. It may result in mocking, it may result in persecution, and for some, it may result in death. But no matter what, are you willing to faithfully declare, Jesus is my master, and I will follow him? You know, when Peter was faced with that temptation there, he didn't take up his cross He did bow to the pressures of men and to the opinions of others, and he denied Christ. But later on, we see time and time again of Peter standing faithfully and declaring, this is who I'm serving, boldly proclaiming, this Jesus whom you crucified, there in Acts chapter 2 when he preached that sermon. And as um, history tells us, um, he was crucified himself as well. Well then, finally here, Jesus' call is to follow him. Follow me. Following Jesus means going where he leads. And for some, it's extreme hardships and trials. And for some, it's persecution and death. Um, In 1 Peter, um, speaking of Peter here, in chapter 2, verse 21, it says this, For you have been called for this purpose, Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Christ suffered. He left an example for us, and that involves suffering. If we're going to follow Christ, it does mean suffering. And Paul says a similar thing in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So you see, this is not the call that the lost man or woman wants to hear. They don't want that. So now let's consider here what Paul is saying in this section here, specifically verse 19, where it says, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If we have, as believers, hoped in Christ in this life only, in other words, if there's no life after this, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then we should be pitied. Why? Because of living our life in hope of something that is never going to happen. Because of denying ourselves pleasures that we could have otherwise enjoyed when it's not going to make a difference in the end Anyway, that's what Paul is bringing out here. The unbeliever thinks this way. They think, I'm not going to waste my life and deny myself the pleasures that I want. How does that benefit me here and now? That's what is going on in the mind of the unbeliever. I don't want to deny myself. I want the pleasure now. What is it going to benefit me now if I deny myself? The lost man has no perspective beyond the here and now. And Paul sums up this thought in verse 32, which we didn't get to, um, But he says this, If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? 
If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You see that idea there? If there's no resurrection, then live however you want. Live for whatever pleasures you want. It's not going to make a difference in the end anyway. If there is no resurrection and no hope of heaven, why would you not want to pursue as much pleasure and enjoyment as possible? Why would you ever want to deny yourself something that you want? Live as full a life as possible because this is all there is. That's the mindset if there is no resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, you see the foolishness of the Christian denying themselves, taking up their cross daily and following Christ for what? It's going to result in death no matter what you, what you do. And in verse 17, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. doesn't matter how you live. You're still lost in your sins if there is no resurrection. If we have, in verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. The reason the Christian endures hardships and trials And the reason the Christian embraces Christ's call to deny self, take up the cross, and follow him is because there is a promise awaiting them, us, at the resurrection. You see, if there is no resurrection, then there's no promise awaiting, and the Christian is the one who has wasted their life for a false hope. And that's what Paul is bringing out here. But, secondly, there is a resurrection, and that's what I want to focus on now, the fact of Christ's resurrection and the certainty of the believer's resurrection. I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to prove the death and resurrection of Christ. You know, books and sermons have been written on this topic that can do much more justice than I can to the topic. Um. But today I want to just briefly look at the beginning of this chapter again, at what Paul says about the gospel that he received and that he preached. So let me just read again to you here verses 3 through 8. This is the gospel that Paul says he received and that he has preached to others. For I, Verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So there's the the simple summation of the gospel message. Christ died, was buried, and rose again. And actually I spoke on this here just a few weeks ago. But then he goes on to talk about the appearances of Christ after the resurrection. Verse 5, in that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelfth. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So, Paul here brings out, not only is he preaching this gospel that he received, but there's also evidence of it. The fact that Jesus appeared to this list of people and 500 people at one time. 
And I was thinking about this, that, you know, in the Old Testament, there in Deuteronomy, it says, on the basis of two or three witnesses, every fact is to be confirmed. How many witnesses do we have here? Over 500 witnesses. In other words, this is a fact that can be confirmed. 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. We can be certain of this, even though we have not physically seen him. 500 did physically see him. And then, of course, not to mention the fact of the Spirit bearing witness to this in our own hearts. But what I particularly want to highlight this morning is how the Bible ties the believer's resurrection with Christ's resurrection. Because Christ was raised from the dead, we too will be raised. And Paul states this in other passages. Um, 1 Corinthians 6.14 says this, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. So you see the connection there. God raised Christ, and he's also going to raise us up through his power. And then again in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 14, Paul says this, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. So again, the connection there. God has raised the Lord Jesus and will raise us also with Jesus. So the the certainty here of the believer, because Christ has been raised, so also the believer will be raised. But look here in our passage here in 1 Corinthians 15, um, in verse 20, what Paul says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. What does he mean by this idea of first fruits? Well, when a crop was planted, the first fruit to be harvested was given back to the Lord as an offering of thanks. But it was more than just an offering of thanks. It was also, um, you might say, an attitude of faith for them to give away the very first fruits that you harvested. It's like you probably needed those and you're giving them back to the Lord. Well, what, are you, what is the faith involved there? The faith is that there's a whole harvest that's coming behind it. You're just selecting the first fruits, the best fruits, to give to the Lord, but there's a harvest that is yet to be harvested. It's coming. So there's faith and trust that the harvest is still coming. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here in this passage. Christ is raised as the first fruit. The first fruit of what? A whole harvest of souls that are going to be resurrected someday. So you see here the certainty that the believer has because Christ was raised from the dead, so also will we be raised from the dead. Verse uh, 21 and 22 here in this same passage. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So it's the same idea. Because of Christ, all will be made alive. So we are not only celebrating the risen Savior 
we are expectantly waiting for our own resurrection when we will be raised with him in glory. And at the end of this chapter, and let's just go ahead and read this, verses 51 through 57, at the end of this chapter, it says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here it's, again, just a triumphant celebration of not something that has happened. Yes, the resurrection of Christ has happened, and we do celebrate and rejoice in that. But Paul is triumphantly proclaiming to us what will happen, this joyful expectation, this biblical hope, not wishful thinking kind of hope, but joyful expectation kind of hope of what is awaiting the believer on the last day, being raised with him in glory, having our perishable body done away with and given an imperishable body. Well, finally then, living in hope of the resurrection. So with this reality of Christ's resurrection and our future resurrection, how does that affect our lives now? In light of the hope of our future resurrection, how should we then live? I was thinking of that uh, video series there from Francis Schaeffer. How should we then live? But really, that's a good question to ask. In light of the resurrection and the future resurrection, how should we then live? The fact of Christ's resurrection and the certainty of our future resurrection changes everything about the Christian life. You see, there's a fundamental difference between the priorities of the unbelieving world and the priorities of the Christian. The unbelieving world, like I already said, lives for the here and now. I'm going to do whatever pleases me. Pleasure, comfort, and ease are some of the top priorities for the unbeliever. But for the Christian we have a completely different perspective. The Christian isn't just looking at the now. We're looking with eyes of faith towards the future, looking towards eternity. After this life is over, there will be a resurrection of the dead, a day of reckoning followed by eternity. After this um, Life is over. It doesn't just end there. We don't all just perish no matter how we live. We see that there is a future. There is a hope. Underneath the decisions that a believer makes is this fundamental fact that we aren't just living for the here and now. We are living in view of the future resurrection. 
because Christ was raised from the dead, we too will be raised. And that fact changes our entire perspective on life. And this idea comes up repeatedly in the scriptures. And I'm going to take some time here just to look at a handful of passages that brings this out. But it is far from exhaustive. I'm not going to cover every one. Um, It's just a sampling. But I want to encourage you as you begin to think about this and as you go home this week and are spending time in the word, look to see how this comes up over and over and over again in scripture. So you can feel free to turn to these if you want, but there's five different passages that I'm going to just read to you and comment just very briefly on. The first one is in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. says, And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him. So Jesus is at this dinner that someone had invited him to. And he says, uh, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now let's think about this. What would the unbelieving person say to what Jesus just told them here? They would be saying, isn't it shrewd and like business savvy to invite someone who can repay you? In other words, that's a pretty good idea. Invite your rich friends over, and then sometime they will repay you. In other words, that's, that's a good exchange. That's shrewd. But Jesus is saying just the opposite. Like, do something that you're not going to get any return for. Don't be doing it with the motive of trying to get return. Instead, be looking forward to the day of, of the resurrection when I will repay you. In other words, it's getting your eyes off the here and now and looking to the future. Do this because it pleases me, and I will repay you. That's what Jesus is stressing to us here in this passage. And again, it's not to say that you can't invite your friends over, but that the motive should not just be for the sake of trying to get something back from them. Well, another one in Matthew chapter 19 Okay, so I I just wrote down one verse here. Um, This is the account of the rich young ruler. and You all are familiar with this um, story here. So the rich young ruler, he's rich. He has a lot of land, a lot of possessions, a lot of money. And he comes asking, you know, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? I've done this, I've done this, I've kept all the laws, all the commandments. I've done everything I can do. And Jesus says to him in verse 21, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So again, very similar to what we saw there in the last passage there in Luke. Give away. 
It's like, again, think about this from a business standpoint. If you're not thinking about eternity, does it make sense to go to your bank tomorrow? They're not open today, but I'm assuming they're open tomorrow. Go to your bank, clear it out. Contact your stockbroker, clear out all your stocks, and give it all to charity. Does that make sense? It's like, what am I going to live on? But that's what Jesus is essentially saying to us here. It's like, don't store up treasures here in this life. Be generous. Give it away because you'll have treasure in heaven. In heaven, not here and now. It's not the idea of the prosperity gospel. Follow Jesus and you'll be happy, healthy, and wealthy. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying store up treasure in heaven. Let your treasure be there. He's pointing us to something future, to something in eternity there. Um, Let's see. While we're in Matthew 19, um, just down a little further, verse 27 says, Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? So uh, Peter is basically saying, Lord, we're not like the rich young ruler. We already have left everything to follow you. And Jesus answers and says in verse 28, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall sit. You also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. So what is Jesus saying here? If you have lost, if the Christian life has caused you to lose things, maybe relationships aren't the same as they used to be. Maybe you've left family not in the sense that it's a broken relationship, but you've left your family to go serve the Lord in some capacity. And so there's a distance between you and the family of mileage, not necessarily of love, but of mileage. He's saying you haven't lost anything. You're going to receive every bit of that back and more. Um, And the big thing, and eternal life. You see, Jesus is pointing us to something in the future. When does all this take place? At the resurrection. All right, a couple chapters back, Matthew 16. This is our fourth one, just one more after this. Matthew 16, verse 24, talking about discipleship here. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew 16, 24, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We already read this earlier. This is the Matthew version of it. But I want to go on. He says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. So right after Jesus gives that call to deny yourself, 
he then goes on to say, ask this question, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Well, again, let's think about that from the world's perspective. What does it profit? That's like the pinnacle, the peak. What does it profit if you gain the whole world? You've gained the whole world. That's a good thing, right? In the eyes of the lost world, that's the case. But Jesus then tells us to look beyond this. Look to eternity. What does it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose or forfeit your soul? You forfeit something that is eternal, your soul. In other words, it profits nothing. So the perspective of the Christian in view of the resurrection, in view of eternity, we would say, what a waste to have gained the whole world and to forfeit your soul. But on the flip side, the, the world is looking at it saying, what a waste. You've wasted your life. You have nothing to show for it but you've gained eternal life? That's a great deal. And Jesus says in verse 25, whoever wishes to save his life, in other words, the lost man trying to make it as special as they can, save the life here, loses it. But whoever loses, gives his life to the Lord for my sake, will what? Will find it. Will have eternal life. Well, then the final one, uh, let's look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, and this was actually read this morning in that card from Ryan and Jamie. Second Corinthians chapter 4, I'm going to start in verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal." So here we have Paul telling us something. He's pointing us to the fact that it's not just about what we see because what we can see with our physical eyes is temporary. It's passing away. But he's telling us to look to the things which are unseen. In other words, the spiritual things that are eternal. And he has a contrast here, which I'm gonna, we're going to come back to this passage a little bit later on. Um, but he has a contrast here about this, um, the light affliction there in verse 17 versus the weight of glory. So the afflictions, yes, there are afflictions in the Christian life, but there's a weight of glory, an eternal weight of glory um, that is awaiting us in heaven. So you see here that there is ample evidence in Scripture of not just looking at things from the lost man's perspective, which is what can I gain in this life only, but looking beyond that and seeing the eternal perspective of a life lived for Christ and what awaits us, the hope that we have in the resurrection. 
Well, I want to finish by highlighting two areas that we especially need to remember as believers. These two areas, at least for myself, I believe are very important to to consider in light of the, the hope that we have of the resurrection. The first one, the fact of the resurrection and eternity to come should fuel our fight against sin. We should see sin in a different light. We see both the rewards for fighting against sin and the punishment that awaits those that are given over to sin. We see that contrast. With spiritual eyes, we can see it by opening up the word and by through prayer. Fighting sin in temptation would be nearly impossible if we were doing it solely based on gritting our teeth and abstaining out of blind obedience. And what I mean by blind obedience is with no understanding whatsoever that there's consequences for sin and that there's rewards for obedience. If we had no idea of that, it would be nearly impossible to fight against sin. But we aren't blind in this fight God has given us a glimpse in what is to come. For those who persevere in the fight against sin, there is blessing, reward, joy, and eternity with Christ in glory. That's what awaits the believer. For those who give up the fight against sin or who never fight at all, slavery to sin, death, judgment, and eternity under the wrath of God. What an incredible contrast that is to think about the fact that it's either blessing and eternal life or it's judgment and eternity under the wrath of God. But we are not fighting alone in this battle. It's not about just mustering up the strength in ourselves. Romans chapter 8 gives us a wonderful promise here. Romans 8 verse 11 says, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The life that is given to our mortal bodies here in in this passage is not speaking of just physical life. You know, the Christian who has been given the Holy Spirit, is not any more alive physically than an unbeliever who doesn't trust God at all. They're both physically alive. The life that is given to our mortal bodies is a spiritual life. This spiritual life is what enables us to fight against sin. And where does this spiritual life come from? Well, it says right here in this verse, from the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead and now lives in us. The same power, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead living inside of us, helping us to fight against sin. This, you see, is one of the wonderful results that we have of the resurrection. Being able to have the spirit in us to help us to fight against sin. Well, the second one, 
The fact of the resurrection and eternity to come helps the believer to endure trials and hardships. Through eyes of faith, we see the reward that is to come. We see the rest that awaits us. You know, there are times when, even if you're not going through, you know, persecution or something like that, there are times where, as believers, we get tired. You know, there's just a, there's a weariness in the Christian life. But what helps us to persevere is knowing that someday there's going to be a day of rest. The, the true Sabbath is coming when we will be able to rest from all our labors and from all the hardships. We can endure the trials a little longer because of the promise of heaven and eternity with Christ. And I already read this passage, but I just want to highlight it again here in 2 Corinthians 4, where this is where Paul's saying the outer man's decaying, the inner man's being renewed day by day, and then he brings out momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So he's, he's making a comparison here. Momentary light affliction versus an eternal weight of glory. What is the momentary light affliction that he's referring to? Well, if you read in other passages about Paul, he, he explains some of the hardships and the trials that he's been through. Shipwrecked multiple times, stoned, persecuted, day and the night spent in the deep, as in, in the ocean, a day and a night in the ocean. I mean, some of the hardships, and then he talks about the daily pressures of the church upon him. Just the suffering, the burden, he's imprisoned. As far as we know, he died uh, a martyr's death. So this, Paul, the, all these persecution and hardships, he's calling momentary light affliction. And it almost seems as though he's making light of his own suffering. But he's not. He is comparing it to the eternal weight of glory that awaits him. And when he compares the two, the, the glory that awaits him, compared to the trials that he's going through right now, he says, yes, this is momentary and this is light. And I was thinking about it this morning. You know, depending on your vantage point, your perspective, you would say this earth that we live on is very big. Like if you go out to Kansas or somewhere really flat and you're out there alone, you can look for miles in every direction. I don't know what is, if it's a flat landscape, I think you can see for like 10 or 20 miles, I think is how far you can see. It's like that, it's just vast all around you. Well, what is 10 or 20 miles compared to the circumference of the whole world? That's just a, a little sliver. You see that this is a very big globe that we're on. But how does it compare with other celestial bodies? And I don't know if you guys remember several weeks ago, I showed the video to the kids of starting with our earth and then going up to stars and bigger and bigger and bigger stars. And as you keep seeing them get bigger and bigger, you begin to realize, whoa, we're on a tiny little rock <laughs> floating around. I mean, comparatively speaking, it is really small. The earth is really small. And again, brethren, think about this, the trials, the hardships, the suffering that you are going through. 
It's not that they aren't a big deal. They are a big deal. But compared to the weight of glory that awaits you, it doesn't compare at all. And that's why Paul can say here that it's these light afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. He can't even compare the two, the reward that is awaiting those uh, in the resurrection. So this is a, a help to us as we're going through our trials to get our eyes off of the trial and the hardship now and get our gaze upon Christ and upon eternity and upon the hope that we have in him. Well, in closing here, I've spent this whole time considering how the reality of the resurrection affects the believer, but I don't want to end without giving an exhortation to the lost. In Acts 24, Paul was speaking with Felix, and he said this in verse 15, Having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So we've already talked about the fact that there will be a resurrection of the righteous. What will the resurrection of the righteous be like? Well, we will be given new glorified bodies, no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, no more sin, It will be joy unspeakable and full of glory. But here in this verse here in Acts 24, it says there will also be a resurrection of the wicked. So what is awaiting the wicked at their resurrection? And later in that same chapter, uh, in verse 24 and 25, it says, And Felix sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as Paul was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. So Paul explains a little bit there of what is the purpose, what is going to happen at this resurrection of the wicked, the judgment to come. Judgment is awaiting the wicked at their resurrection. And what a terrifying reality that is. The wicked will be raised from the dead to face their judgment and eternal punishment under the wrath of God. And it made me think of this passage in Revelation 6, starting in verse 12. It says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. So this is a kind of a scary scene that uh, is being portrayed here. But then these last few verses. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong... And every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? You realize that on this day of the resurrection of the wicked and their judgment, there is going to be nowhere to run and hide. There is nowhere to go. Even calling on mountains to fall on you will not save you. It won't hide you from the wrath of God. Not even death can hide you from the wrath of God because there is a resurrection coming when he will raise you to be able to judge you. See, there is nowhere to run and flee. But there is a hiding place for you from the wrath of God. Now, today, you can hide in Christ. I thought about that song that we sing, uh, Jesus Christ, my hiding place. If you hide in Christ, you are safe from the wrath of God. Christ already took the wrath upon himself, and all those who put their trust, their faith in him, will be saved. And what a glorious contrast. Again, instead of being raised from the dead to face eternal punishment, those who are hidden in Christ will be raised to spend eternity in his presence. Made me think again of in Matthew 25 there, uh, when Jesus is talking about the last day, He'll say to those on his right, you know, welcome, come, you who are blessed and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. And then to those on his left, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Casting them off into eternal punishment. What a contrast that is. The difference being those who are standing in their own strength versus those who are hiding in Christ. So to the Christian, keep fighting against sin, keep persevering under trials, because we have a reward that is coming. Galatians 6, 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. There's going to be a reward coming. We will reap if we do not grow weary. And then to the unbeliever. Run to Christ. Put your faith in him. And if you do, you too can look forward to the joy that awaits you at the resurrection of the dead. Well, why don't we close in prayer here. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, that you have given us eyes to see uh, something of eternity. Lord, we confess that we're seeing it dimly. We're seeing it darkly. But Lord, we trust that what you've said is going to happen. There is going to be a day of reckoning. There is going to be a day when everyone will stand before you. And Lord, we thank you that we serve a risen Savior and that we have a hope because he lives, we too can live. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us, help us to walk in light of this reality. Lord, I pray that our eyes would not just be upon the things of this earth, but that we would be considering eternity, that it would be, truly would be 
weighing in to every decision we make, considering your honor, your glory, considering eternity. But, Lord, we pray also for those who are lost, Lord, that they would begin to consider eternity. Um, Lord, that they would run to you, that they would hide in you, Lord, before it's too late. Thank you for this time here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.